Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic. Found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Michael Hartney is an actor, writer, and comedian who is the final artistic director for the Upright Citizen Brigade Theater when it shuttered its New York City operations in 2020. And he's one of the founding members of the new nonprofit Squirrel Comedy Theater. Hartney created the roles of Stanley and Mr. Williams in the original Broadway cast of School of Rock the Musical. And on TV, he has appeared on 30 Rock, The Politician, The Break with Michelle Wolf, and Throwing Shade, where he also served as a staff writer. He has been a Comedy Central comic to watch, a new face at the Just for Laughs Festival in Montreal, and he can be seen every Wednesday night hosting Characters Welcome, a streaming character comedy show. Hartney joined me over Zoom to talk about how he has navigated through the end of the UCB and NYC to the launch of the Squirrel Comedy Theater and everything in between. If you like this conversation, please consider subscribing to my substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com so you can read bonus commentary on this episode as well as more comedy news and insights. Thanks in advance, and now that that's out of the way, let's get to it! So, Michael Hartney, uh, thank you for being here. Last things first, it's been more than a decade since I reviewed your one-man show, So I Like Superman. Oh, so. God. How has the last decade been for a Superman fan? Wow. You know what? It's, it's ha- really had its ups and downs, Sean. Um, there have been good comic books. There have been bad comic books. There have been terrible movies. There's been a good TV show. Um, yeah, it's been all over the map. How do you feel about Superman currently? Um, I... Right now... Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> right. So right now, in the I mean, I could have led with what was it like to crash the UCB, but <laughs> yeah, it could have been something like that. But I'd much rather talk about Superman than UCB, to be honest. Um, <laughs> right now, his son has taken over as Superman, mm. and his his secret has been revealed to the world. So there's no like Clark Kent Superman thing happening, and like that's just not my shit. I know, as a as a newspaper reporter myself, I do not condone the the disappearance of Clark Kent. I mean, I guess he still exists and is like writing for, <laughs> writing for the planet still, but like everyone knows he's Superman and it's just weird. Like, just just give me what I like. I <laughs> I'm old. <laughs> well, lawn, DC Comics. Well, you were, you were so young when I first met you at the UCB theater. Too true, too true. Just a fresh-faced little fawn. Yeah, back when it was uh, just under the basement of a Gristides and uh, not bleeding money everywhere. Yeah, that was fun then. Yeah, I... I remember then. Uh, well, it's, it's kind of, you know... I want to talk to you a, a whole lot about the Squirrel Theater. Great. But to get to the Squirrel Theater, <laughs> you, have to, you have to come out of the UCB. And it blew my mind when I went back to look this up. Like, I remember seeing you as a part of the uh, mod sketch team High Treason. Oh, yeah. Which included a then-unknown Kate McKinnon. 
and some yeah some... if you weren't one of the dozens of people who watched the big gay sketch show you did not know who kate mckinnon was yeah i did she not was know already on that show when she was on mod night yeah i had no idea about the big gay sketch show i didn't even know i might have known logo was it was a channel but not really yeah that's i mean that persists to this day we're no one's really sure if logo's a channel still <laughs> Well, so many so many cable channels have have come and go and rebranded, so it might be something else. Which yeah, which I, means it probably isn't. It's probably still there, and I just don't. I think it still exists. And as someone who it. was literally employed by Logo for two years, I should know the answer, and mm-hmm. I very much don't. Ah, but but it seems like uh, looking back on it, your your experience with high treason, like also ironically, is like high treason because one of the writers for that. That team was Aaron Glazer. Oh my God, Sean, we're really going for AKA, it, aren't we? AKA the man who who may or may not have uh, accelerated the the financial bankruptcy of the UCB. You know, I can't confirm or deny that. Um, <laughs> I only say that because I only say that because I had Matt Besser on the podcast. I interviewed him in person at the Sunset Theater when that was still a thing, and. Uh, when I talked to that? him, when I talked to him, he didn't say this on the microphone, but the after we turned the microphones off, the lawsuit was still ongoing. So I got the impression that they were bleeding a lot of money on that. Well, I do think it was very expensive, and it is one of the expenses that did not find its way into the information I had. Mm. So could be. One of the reasons I wanted to talk to you now is because you know, you've, you've not only survived the end of the UCB, but you're, you're like building back better to borrow a term from the current president mm. by, mm. by joining together with some other improvisers and, and sketch players and, and forming this new nonprofit called the Squirrel Theater. So tell me, like, how did you, how did you and, and the other squirrels rally? Um, so, you know, when, when everything closed, I knew that the UCB had no intention of returning to New York. Um, I think there was probably some desire to license the name and do UCB shows in New York with no, with them not on the hook financially in any way. Um, and for, I don't know, a couple months, that seemed like maybe that was a feasible thing. I guess it's still feasible. Someone could do that. That could still happen. Um, But once the news in June came out that um, they took six figures worth of PPP loan money out on the New York company, which I knew full well, they had no intention of reopening. um, That's when I was like, okay, well, we're on our own and we've got to fill this void somehow so i emailed uh corinne wells and we started chit-chatting and uh eventually started chit-chatting with lou gonzalez and patrick Keane and maritza montanez and alex songsha and so the six of us met every week for months and months and months trying to figure out <laughs> what the hell how the hell to do this and what to keep from the old way and what to throw away and, and how to change 
those things. So what did you decide ultimately? Well, I mean, first we went with nonprofit. Um, that way that we could be financially transparent. There's no mystery about where any of the money went because it's literally the law <laughs> that it's uh, <laughs> public knowledge. Mm-hmm. Um, I think being founded by a, a group that is majority queer, majority people of color, I think is a step in the right direction. Um, I just think like our tastes and sensibilities are just going to lend themselves to uh, programming that's and classes that are more representative. One of the, you know, like those are two of the big problems. Right. One of, one of the, one of the knocks on, I guess, not just the UCB, but also other New York or even Chicago and LA improv and, and sketch schools was that the barrier to entry was so high that it sort of weeded out a lot of people yeah, so who weren't already privileged enough right. to spend the money. And that's not the case here. So mm-hmm. if you, you know, took a couple second city classes, you don't have to start over with squirrel. If you're like, I'm ready for improv three, or I'm ready for this advanced form class, then go ahead and take the class. Um, you, you know, there's no barrier to entry to our stage. It's our, our form, our pitch form is on our website. Literally anyone can pitch me a show. Um, you don't have to come from the squirrel or have dropped thousands of dollars on classes with us. Um, so that's another big thing that we're trying to change is just making it more accessible to more people. Where are you at in terms of having a physical space? I know the pandemic is changing the the factors from sure. week to week, but yeah, well, um, you know, we we have a three night residency at Caveat, so at the this is the physical space we're in at the moment. Um, we've got a lot of funds still to raise to be able to to really, you know, deal with the albatross that is a New York lease. Um, <clears throat> it's just not only going to require a lot of overhead with rent and insurance, but also staffing. I mean, it's just, it's a it's a tremendous undertaking, and we're in the process of strategizing how we're going to fund that. Now, I I don't want to assume too much, but I assume that when you first started performing and taking classes at the UCB yourself, you probably didn't imagine you would have to think about any of these questions. Yeah, no, and it's actually a super bummer that I have to. What was your What was your plan when you when I first saw you as a as a wee little high treason Superman loving lad? Oh, you know, I, I wanted to do my dumb characters and and uh, sign with a big agent and a manager and get on SNL and you know be in movies now or like have wrapped season four of my FX show or some shit. Mm-hmm. Well, you, I those mean, things didn't happen, but you know, those things haven't happened, but you've been on Broadway for years. You were in the, I was, yeah, I was you were in the Broadway ABC, hit Broadway musical of school of rock. Yeah. Pretty cool. Where you were, you were not only on stage uh, just about every night, but some nights you got to be the main character, right? You were, 
the understudy for a while exactly two nights and by (laughs) nights i mean sunday early afternoons Um, (laughs) i did go on twice it was the craziest time of my life but yeah i was on every night i played like four characters in the ensemble Mm -hmm. wait but okay so even though it's i think it's even more impressive slash fascinating um are you familiar with the the movie field of dreams hell yeah Okay, so it's it seems like a kind of a Moonlight Graham situation where <laughs> you're in this show and you got called up and you get this like <laughs> two times but on a Sunday early matinee. Yeah. What so what was it like to be the lead in a Broadway musical and just have it be a fleeting experience? Uh, yeah, it was I, I mean it was it was kind of a slow going uh source of tremendous anxiety for almost a year because I knew I I had gotten hired to cover Dewey mm-hmm. as if before like before they, the show started getting workshopped and when it was cast they had no idea how extensive the guitar part that Dewey had to play would be uh-huh. and I was very upfront at the beginning that I have never seen a guitar, let alone played one. Uh, Okay. That could be a hurdle. Okay. So, so, you know, they put me in guitar lessons and it just became clear very quickly that I have no aptitude for that instrument. Mm -hmm. And, And, you know, some people take to things more easily. Like I'm, I do take to some things easily. Guitar just was not one of them. And, um, you know, the assistant director at some point <laughs> came up to me after one, you know, Dewey rehearsal and was like, so you know what is holding you back, right? I'm like, this damn thing with the six strings? Yeah, I'm fully aware. <laughs> um, but I just kept plugging away at it and there was no like, okay, you're ready. There was no conversation like that. It was just a phone call from the stage man. No, a text from the stage manager one day while I was in a tech rehearsal at UCB Chelsea mm-hmm. below Gristides. And uh, <laughs> it just said, you're going on as Dewey on Sunday. It's <laughs> like, okay, here it is, baby. Um, and that first show, I was so focused on getting the guitar right that I wasn't really thinking about other things, which ended up being fine. I I had some big, I had a couple of big kind of vocal problems in that first one. Um, But the guitar, I smoked it. (laughs) And then my guitar teacher surprised me by being there. So I was like, yes, I played guitar well in front of my guitar teacher. This is good. On Broadway. Yeah. What about the second time? Second time, fixed the vocal problems. Guitar, a little less good and they changed one of the guitar parts between shows. Dewey used to play like the opening riff of Satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And then I guess Andrew Lloyd Webber and Mick Jagger just could not come to an agreement on that. And okay. so it changed to a, 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 a Andrew Lloyd Webber original riff, oh, no. which I totally fucked up the first note of. Um, yeah, but, but nobody, fine, would, like, nobody, yeah, nobody would know what that is. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay, phew. Um, well, that also kind of like coincides with like, I, I didn't realize this until I looked it up, but in my records on my website, both in 2018, you also, while you were doing Broadway, 2018, you also, that was the year that you had new faces 
at Just oh, for yeah. Laughs. And it was also a year where you were you were selected in this very competitive NBC late night writers workshop. Yes, it only took me um, uh, uh, <laughs> already having worked as a staff writer in late night television to get that uh, <laughs> workshop. So that was cool. Well, that's that's kind of a, that's kind of a, a, a testament to the state of late night television, at least in 2018. That <laughs> the doors. <laughs> Yeah, that it, it was so exclusive that you could be already have a, a late night TV credit and still be like, I have to go to this workshop. So I have to go to this workshop. I truly was like, I can't believe I'm going to do this, but I think I'm going to apply to this workshop. And was then, it ben- how how beneficial was it? Uh, you know, I I met cool people for sure, and like um, the NBC program that does late night writers workshop and writers on the verge and all that stuff all those people are great and um you know i've definitely gotten to submit for other things with or without reps so it's been a great resource right i guess that's like the question that most outsiders have is like well how do i get in the door do i be an intern for i guess you know there's a lot of people who 20 years ago were an intern for conan or the sure. intern at SNL, and then, okay, now I'm in the door, now they know my face, and now I can get something. Yeah, I'm still they... waiting for the thing, but, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but, but, I, but I probably suppose a lot of people thought this late-night writer's workshop was the kind of thing that might be like a pipeline to, oh, no, they're going to get me in the system, and I'm going to become part of sure, NBC I, now. You know, and, and uh, a bunch of writers are... Um a bunch of writers from my year have staffed on really cool shows. Um, Yeah. So, you know, I'll get staffed on a show again someday. (laughs) Well, I guess that's the question though, is like what, you know, when you, I asked you when you started what you wanted and you said you wanted to be on SNL, like what, how has what you wanted changed as you've gotten older and you've had a lot of experience with, the system and with other performers and writers and well as i've found that um the goal of <laughs> being honest now is, is a a pretty unlikely herculean task um i i had to ask myself what about that do i want and it's you know getting to do sketch comedy and play characters on television so that's still what I want to do is do sketch comedy and play characters on television. That hasn't changed. Um, it's just probably not going to be on this. <laughs> no, it might be more things like your uh, New York times opinion. Yeah. guy. <laughs> Start in a sketch on television. I mean, that's the dream. I I did that. It happened. Once. That might've, that might've been my favorite. That might've been my favorite thing from Netflix is the break with Michelle Wolf was, Hell yeah. was your, was your role as the New York times curator of the opinions pages. Yes. Ryan Perez, sketch writer extraordinaire wrote that sketch. What is the difference for you in terms of like getting a role like that where you just come in and you shoot for probably one day on something like that versus like, getting a role on a sitcom that might be in the background, but if you play your cards right, your one line could turn into a recurring thing or. Wow. Once anything like that happens to me on a sitcom, I feel I'll be able to weigh in more. 
weigh <laughs> in more on that. Um, normally, yeah, like the last thing I did shoot was an episode of The Politician where I, I was supposed to have like kind of a part, like a little bit of a part, mm-hmm. um, a little juicy, uh, catty chat with Bette Midler's character. And then I booked it, got the script, and my character had been whittled down to exactly one line. Because my whole char- the whole point of my character was to set up Bette Midler to do a duet with Ben Platt. Mm-hmm. And then that did not happen. Oh, um, so then... So there was no need for me to say anything but whatever dumb thing I said. <laughs> and um, so then I watched the episode, and uh, for my line... It's like a wide shot of my back to the camera. <laughs> Hell yeah. This is one for the real. <laughs> but you still get to be on set with Bette Midler. So. Oh my God. I got to be on set with Bette Midler and Judith Light and watch them act truly all day long. And it was crazy. It was great. What do you, what do you get from, or what do you try to get from an experience like that? Other than like just uh, being in awe. Well, I think, you know, especially us like live improv and sketch people, we don't (laughs) always have a ton of experience with a camera four inches from your face doing pretty naturalistic acting, but keeping it alive and buoyant and watching those two do that over and over again hitting their marks perfectly every time but every time also giving it a little something different um it was it was just fascinating to watch one of the one of the things that you've uh, been able to maintain slash carry over from ucb is your your kind of signature showcase characters welcome Tell, yeah. tell me about tell me about how how you started that in the first place. Cool. Uh, so, me and Justin Tyler um, like doing characters, and I think you know Justin was I think a little more entrenched in UCB stuff at the time than me, and um, had just done like a Mad TV showcase, and. Um, like Gabrus did it, like a bunch of people did it. And um, because there was no like character thing going on at the time, once they found out they had the showcase, they had like three days to just write as much bullshit as they could and do it. <laughs> like, uh, I think we need to be a little more prepared when these things come along. Uh, so Justin and I started a weekly workshop where anybody who wanted to, um, would come in, put up a piece in whatever shape it was in and get feedback from the room. And me and Justin would put up characters too. And, um, you know, we were like, I, we should try to see if we can like make a show of this. And so we emailed Nate Dern, who was the artistic director at the time at UCB, um, thinking maybe he'll give us a slot midnight on a Tuesday at the Beast. Like, who knows? Mm-hmm. He's like, oh, sure. How does Saturday... <laughs> Seven thirty sound okay yeah cool all right wow um Prime time and so yeah our first show was in late december of 2012 our special guest was kate mckinnon no less and so yeah we've been doing that show for almost nine years um it briefly was a house team at the ucb theater 
then it became a house team in LA. We've done web series. The YouTube channel kind of blew up uh, in the past like year or so. So yeah, we've got a bit of a following. It's pretty cool. Well, and you did that, like that was right around the same time that Just for Laughs even thought of doing their own characters thing with me faces. So I suppose that is true. I think um, Griffin Newman, who had just done it maybe like the second year or something. They started in um, 2011. They added it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So then I think Griffin did the one in 2012. And then pretty quickly after that was like, hey, can I start coming to this workshop? Uh, I just did this just for laughs. New faces character thing. Yeah, Griffin. Yeah, you can come by and do some characters. That's fine. I mean, one of the things that I love about your show, but also about like the fact that Just for Laughs started doing, adding the characters showcase is that it kind of, I know they did it because they wanted to create more buzz for, because they also wanted to get Saturday Night Live's attention. So they, they said, Hey, we're doing our own sort of SNL audition, but, but by doing that, it kind of peels back the curtain for all of us who, who think SNL is just this big black box of a mystery and go, oh, this is what it must be like to, to do an audition for SNL. I mean, I think. <laughs> like, I mean, I think people find their way to that show in a bunch of different ways. Like some mm-hmm. people do zero characters and just do a stand-up set. Um, but for the people who fell in love with that show because of people like, you know, Phil Hartman, people who could disappear into a bunch of different characters, that's certainly one way to arrive on the show. And that's kind of what we've been working on, what we've been teaching, that kind of thing. How, when you're developing characters for yourself, how often are you just like doing it to see what you can pull off? And how often are you doing it with the intention slash hopes that you'll stumble onto something that'll be a character you can perform for years. Oh, that's interesting. Um, Because we've returned to doing a live streaming show every week, Mm -hmm. I've had to just write an incredible amount of material. Right. Because I try not to repeat the same characters. And so I don't think I am work on any of these things with any intention other than I've got to have something to perform on Wednesday at 8 PM. So (laughs) usually it ends up being some sort of petty grievance (laughs) that I've turned into a character, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, anti-maskers and people who say, Oh, people don't want to work anymore. And you know, gay guys on your feed who are like, I can't believe people aren't following protocols. And they say that, in a busy tapas restaurant um that kind of stuff i just mm-hmm. i don't know i've been all we've been doing is kind of observing the world through the internet and so <laughs> that's probably most of the inspiration i've been using for characters lately okay um but what... i wouldn't say any of them i'm like this is the one that i'm gonna build a solo show around it and people mm-hmm. will flock from everywhere to see oh okay that's interesting to know. It sounds lofty. I should try I should try something like that. Right. You should. <laughs> you should, Michael Hartney. Um so what what was it like being the artistic director for the UCB theater? Oh my god. For the first three months it was pretty fun actually. 
um you know this it isn't a job i wanted i just needed a job and that job became available and i knew i'd be good at it you took over for shannon o'neill right yeah so So did she did she like tap you on the shoulders and say hey i'm done no no not at all no i didn't talk to her about it at all in fact i think hmm, i think matt rogers texted me was like end of an era or something like that i was like i don't know what you're talking about (laughs) Uh, and then I saw the email and I was like, oh, I should apply to this. And he was like, babe, don't. It's <laughs> like, I need a job, man. Um, so, I mean, I truly applied because I like health insurance and I like a paycheck and I would, and I knew I'd be good at it. So the first few months were pretty fun. I got to put together mod teams, which like sketch comedy is my favorite thing in the world. So getting to watch a bunch of character auditions and read a bunch of comedy sketches, like to some people that probably sounds like a nightmare. And to me, it was super, super fun. Um, And then we missed payroll twice. (laughs) And I was like, well, what the fuck have I gotten myself into here? Uh, then I had to tell everyone that we were having massive financial problems and pretend like we weren't going to leave the beast when I knew full well we were going to leave the beast, which, by the way, was a absolute bad, dumb move. Um, <laughs> reactionary, fully idiotic. Um, begged them to not do it. Um so that's when it just became this like, you know, embattled artistic director, Michael Hartney. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I think certainly I think audiences came back a bit. Um, I think the big narrative is that like nobody liked Hell's Kitchen and no one came to Hell's Kitchen. And the reality is a lot of people liked Hell's Kitchen and tons of people came to Hell's Kitchen. There were lines down 42nd Street the way there were lines down 26th Street. I didn't go there as often, but every time I went, it was packed. Yeah. Um, cool space. Good theater. But in, but just in terms of like uh, shifting from being a performer to being a programmer, like that's a whole, like you, you mentioned being able to, to watch auditions and put together teams, but then there was also like figuring out the rest of the schedule, right? Oh, yeah. This is a big job. Did you have a big job, mama? Did you have uh, any big goals in terms of like, okay, I know the UCB has been this way, but now that I'm in charge, it's going to be this way. Um, or did you just think about what was the stuff you liked and wanted to see? I don't think it was necessarily what I liked and wanted to see so much as it was. What are the cool things the community is doing that, I can put up. I mean, I, I like, I don't think any of my predecessors would say like, Oh, I was not into diversity, (laughs) but I definitely tried to expand how much representation was on our teams in our, in our shows. Um, you know, like there's those identity based shows that I think are cool. And, we did a bunch more of them when I was running things. Um, Monday nights, because we were suddenly in this like big theater in the theater district, I tried to tailor more towards like a Broadway is dark that night. So come see us do this stuff instead. 
Um, and so Monday nights picked up um, in a completely different way than I think a, a, the UCB audience was used to. Right. I definitely remember writing about and seeing some shows at Hell's Kitchen that were definitely like kind of Broadway-like in terms of like being musical theater and being more like... Yeah. So... There was Rumble Teaser, the musical uh, improv group. There was Shiz, which is like a, a, yeah, I about a Shiz. sketch show that uses show tunes. Um, a lot of stuff like that. So now, you know, now that you have that experience behind you, what is your, I mean, as I mentioned before, if you're listening to this in August or September of 2021, you're obviously well aware, painfully, of where we are in the pandemic. But if you're listening to this later, who knows what the pandemic might be like and when theaters will be back open and when uh, it'll be easier to find a space and all of that stuff. What do you, what do you hope to see out of just, not just Squirrel, but, but the, the improv and sketch communities in New York City and beyond when we do come back? You know, I want the Squirrel to have a space. I want... Uh, sold out shows, people excited. I want that for Magnet. I want that for The Pit. Like, I want that for everybody. I want people to be as excited about improv and sketch as they were in, like, the mid-aughts. <laughs> <laughs> because I think it's been a while since anyone has been that excited about improv and sketch. And that's fine. Um, you know, everything's cyclical. But uh, I, yeah, I hope, um, I hope it's just going to thrive. And I think having good people, good talent and, you know, audiences who can come to a theater and see themselves on stage in some way. I mean, that's what we're really after. And, um, hopefully we're going to just keep doing it. Well, I know, I know you get to, you get to improvise this weekend with the, uh, the new and improved rat scraps and all these other shows. So, and Borabish, uh, every Saturday night at seven 30. Um, that's the founders. That's the squirrel founders doing some prof. That's you and Corinne and the other squirrels. Do you call yourself squirrels or what do you, (laughs) I don't want to, I don't want to like, uh, haphazardly ascribe a nickname. (laughs) Uh, the name of our zo- weekly Zoom meeting is Squirrel Six. Squirrel Six. So I guess we're the Squirrel Six. Okay, right. Take that UCB four. You got the Squirrel Six. Yeah, take that. <laughs> you guys. <laughs> well, Michael Hartney, I really appreciate catching up with you. And uh, thanks so much for having me, Sean. Nice to talk to you as well. And I look forward to seeing all of the the new characters that we've just inspired in this conversation. Ooh, they're, oh, they are legion. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was post-produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music was by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Giggle Chick. If you enjoyed listening, please check out my Substack called Piffany at piffany.substack.com for transcripts, bonus commentary, and expert analysis about comedy, show business, and more. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.